Um, if you did come in just a few seconds late, again, we want to wish happy birthday to McLean. Uh, scripture tells us to always revere our elders, so I want us to do that and make sure um, we appreciate you and we're going to see you in triple digits. That's the goal, so don't even think about going anywhere anytime soon, no. Um, but anyway, just be sure to wish McLean a happy birthday and there's still some... Uh, uh, dessert up here if you want some. But we are jumping back into Numbers chapter 2. Last week we went through the tribe, the arrangement, the census. We talked about the numbers in Numbers, and that's why the book is named Numbers, because there are lists of numbers, and the beginning chapters are about organizing those numbers. So you have tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of uh, former slaves that are just this mass of humanity that have come out of Egypt after 400 years, and they've been camped around Mount Sinai for the past year, and so God is arranging them into his army. And that's the key for Numbers, is to see Numbers as army preparation, because their job is not just to go in and live in the land, their job is to be the judgment that God unleashes on the particular nations of the Canaanites in that land. And God's going to do the same thing later in the Old Testament. He'll do the same thing to Israel, but using other armies like Babylon and Assyria. So this is something God does in the ancient world. And whether that gives you problems or not theologically, that's what's in the text. Um, God uses peoples to judge other peoples in the context of the Old Covenant in the ancient Near East. And that's one thing that we have to reckon with. So for the Israelites, this would have been unheard of because they're a nation of slaves, a group of slaves. And now they're going to be an army. They're going to go fight against these peoples that God is commanding to, to drive out of this land. So in order to do that, the whole beginning of Numbers is organizing, and particularly organizing them in a certain way. Last week we looked at how the tribes were numbered to see how many fighting men were in each tribe and how many elephs of men, and, and sometimes that's translated as thousands, but sometimes it's translated as clan or regiment or something like that. So I'm just sticking with the Hebrew elephs that scholars really can't say for certain what the numbers were, contrary to some uh, translations. So they've, they've got all of their elephs among all of the tribes, and now the next thing, they're numbered, so the number of the men, the men that can fight, ages 20 and up, and now they're going to Arrange. God's going to now arrange them. Now that you've been numbered, now we've got to arrange you. So, chapter 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle, the, 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 the portable Mount Sinai, as we've seen all last year. Some distance from it, each man under his standard with the banners of his family. So each man under his and standard is just kind of like either a banner or a raised up sign or, or, or something. There's going to be one per tribe grouping. And then further subdivided from that will be the banners of each individual head of the household. Again, we said family. Don't think of husband, wife, child. Think of like extended family. Think of a clan or a grouping or something like that. But it's, it's the house of the fathers is the Hebrew term. So you're going to camp. You're going to camp according to your families, under your banners, under your standard. Here we go. The first group on the east, towards the sunrise, the divisions of the camp of Judah are to encamp under their standard. The leader, and this is that word we looked at last week, the lifted up one, the chief, the, the head honcho of this fighting force. The leader of the people of Judah is Nashon, son of Amenadab. 
his division numbers 74 elephants and 600. The tribe of Issachar will camp next to them. The leader of the people of Issachar is Nathanael, son of Zuar. His division numbers 54 elephants, 400. The tribe of Zebulun will be next. The leader of the people of Zebulun is Eliab, son of Helon. His division numbers 57 elephants, 400. All the men assigned to the camp of Judah, according to their divisions, number 186 elephants, 400. They will set out first. So the first group, this is what God's doing. He's saying, here's the tabernacle. All right, so the tabernacle will be this vat of ranch dressing. Right? Here's the tabernacle. Then on the east, sunrise. That's the direction. See, our cardinal direction, we think of north as always being the guiding direction. But for the Israelites, the ancient Near East, it was east. Why? It's the way the sun rose. Theologically, God does stuff from the east a lot in Scripture. The entrance to Eden was in the east. The entrance to the tabernacle faces east. Eastward is kind of their primary direction. So there's going to be three of the tribes who are going to be camped at the east, and the head, the one in the middle, is going to be Judah, and then flanking Judah on either side are going to be Issachar and Zebulun, and all their camps. So you can think of like Issachar, Judah, Zebulun, and then their camp, their banners, their standards. So like here's a banner, right? If I can get this, this here's a banner. All right, here's another banner. You didn't know there'd be object lessons here with food. All right, and if I had a third, there'd be a third banner. But anyway, then the camps would be camped out facing their banner towards the tabernacle. So like fanned out along the east side, right? So then the next grouping, and it says they will set out first. Literally, it means they will pull up camp first. So whenever Israel's going to move, this grouping is the front. They're the, the vanguard. They're the, 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 the point person, so to speak. And they're also the largest grouping. So they're front. Then the next direction, if you're facing east, the next direction um, is going to be to your right hand, and that's south. And so that's what we see on the south side will be the divisions of the camp of Reuben under their standard. The leader of Reuben is Elizur, son of Shedeur. His division numbers 46 Alice 500. The tribe of Simeon will camp next to them. The leader of the people of Simeon is Shalumiel, son of Zurishadai. His division numbers 59 Alice 300. The tribe of Gad will be next. The leader of the people of Gad is Eliasaf, son of Duel. His division numbers 45 out of 650. All the men assigned to the camp of Reuben, according to their divisions, number 151 out of 450. They will set out second. So the next group that's camped on the south, all right, again, the banners, the standards, Reuben, and then the other two on either side, and then their followers or their people fanned out facing their standard. They're the second group that moves out when it's time to move the camp. Then the tent of the meeting, the camp of the Levites, will set out in the middle of the camps. They will set out in the same order as they encamp, each in his own place under his standard. And they'll get to their numbers in just a minute in the next chapter. But this is now the middle of this grouping now. So first line moves out, then the guys on the south move out, then the tabernacle people move out in the middle. It's the middle grouping. So even in motion, it's at the center. When they're encamped, it's at the center of the donut. When they're moving, it's the center car in the train. All right? God is always at the center. Then you come to the next direction. On the west will be the divisions of the camp of Ephraim under their standard. The leader of the camp of Ephraim is Elishama, son of Amihud. His division numbers 40 out of 500. The tribe of Manasseh will be next to them. The leader of the people of Manasseh is Gamaliel, son of Petazur. His division numbers 32 out of 200. 
The tribe of Benjamin will be next. The leader of the people of Benjamin is Abidan, son of Gideoni. His division numbers 35 out of 400. All the men assigned to the camp of Ephraim, according to their divisions, number 108 out of 100. They will set out third. So then this group would set out. This makes logistical sense in terms of how you move a large camp of people. But it also, there's theological sense to what's going on that we'll see in a minute. On the north then, the last one, would be the division of the camp of Dan under their standard. The leader of the people of Dan is Ahiezer, son of Amishadai. His division numbers 62 of 700. The tribe of Asher will cut next to him. The leader of the people of Asher is Pagiel, son of Ahran. His division numbers 41 of 500. The tribe of Naphtali will be next. The leader of the people of Naphtali is Ahira, son of Anod. His division numbers 53 of 400. All the men assigned to the camp of Dan, number 157, they will set out last under their standards. So the last group that sets out is the group camp on the north, and they're the second largest uh, grouping of these tribes. So these are the Israelites counted according to their families. All those in the camps by their divisions, number 603, 550. The Levites, however, were not counted along with the other Israelites as the Lord commanded Moses. So, the Israelites did everything the Lord commanded Moses. That is the way they encamped under their standards. That is the way they set out, each with his clan and family. Now, the next chapter we'll get into next week are going to break down the Levites, because we haven't seen much about them so far. What are their numbers? How many Elephs are there of Levites? What's their role? But right now, all of the people as a whole, this is what's happening. Just imagine a stadium seat or in the round, right? Like, I mean, Bank of America Stadium is not a bad visualization if you want to get an idea of the number and the size <clears throat> if these elephs are fighting units of comparable size in the ancient Near East. But regardless, the center, the center is the tabernacle, God's presence. And they are fanned out on all sides of it, all four directions, all four sides, so that everyone is facing. This is the city planning in the ancient Near East for a mobile city, a mobile people. Now, this is similar. There's two things that this, this setup is similar to. It's similar to the camps, Egyptian war camps. In the second and third millennium BC, the Egyptian war camps would be set up in square or a ring format. And then the, the key stuff would be at the center and the people would move out. And so it, it, it makes sense when these people coming out of Egypt. They wouldn't be totally unfamiliar with this concept. This is how an army on the move moves when their leader is at the center. And it's also similar to some ancient pilgrimage, uh, tabernacle, palacy, mobile type setups that uh, were used in Egypt and elsewhere in the ancient Near East, where like a queen or a king or somebody would have their entourage and they would move around. They would always be surrounded by their people, by their followers, by their worshipers. So this has aspects, the camp that God's telling Israel, this is how you're going to be camped and set up, has aspects of both military and pilgrimage. It has military aspects, it's set up like a war camp in Egypt, and it has pilgrimage aspects. It's set up like a religious uh, a moving or, or a, a royal shrine that would be moving around. It, it makes sense on both fronts. And that's not accidental. I mean, that's we even to this day, we describe the spiritual life in both terms. We describe ourselves as on a pilgrimage. 
we're strangers, you know, this world is not our home. We're, you know, the, the idea of us being sojourners or being pilgrims in a foreign land, that's New Testament as well as Old Testament. And we describe spiritual warfare. We describe the Christian soldier mindset, the idea of being the army of God. That, again, is a New Testament image, and it comes right out of the book of Numbers. When Revelation lists, and the Revelation it lists out all of the the people who, who, when he looks and sees them, it's somebody, it's people from every tribe, nation, language, tongue, people. That's what John sees. But when he hears them called out before he turns and looks, he hears a numbers military census. He hears 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe, 144,000 from all the tribes. He hears what sounds like the book of numbers, but with different symbolic numbers. And then when he looks, that number, not he doesn't see a camp of Israelite warriors. He sees a multitude of people from every tribe, language, tongue, nation. And they're not waging holding swords. They're waving palm branches. They're not clothed in armor. They're clothed in white robes. This is how Revelation takes the imagery of numbers and turns it on its head. Because it presents the life of followers of Jesus as reliving Israel's history in the desert. Reliving their... their the, the concept of being the people of God on the move at war. Only in the New Testament, the war is not against the Canaanites. The war is not against the Russians. The war is not against the Muslims. The war is not against the Northerners, the Yankees. The, the, there's, the war is not against any of that. The war is against the principalities and the powers and the spiritual dark forces of this age. That's what New Covenant warfare is geared at. And, and so the people of God today the church is it's the same it's the, the old testament gives the overall vision for how we should see ourselves it did for the all of the original first early christians and it should today but the problem is we as a church have some divorced ourselves from study of the old testament to a large degree and when we do go back into torah usually it's to pick up a story about the ten commandments or maybe a lesson that we can draw a fable from about being brave and being you know Hoosier joshua and you know, that kind of stuff. But in reality, it's the blueprint. It's the, it's the spiritual orientation for how we as God's people should see ourselves because we today, followers of Jesus, are the continuation of God's people in the Old Covenant. Not the replacement, but the continuation of. So when we read Numbers and we see this camp, we notice these things. Like one, God's a God of organization, a God of order. Bringing order out of chaos is a big theme in these early chapters of Numbers. Two, he's a God of logistics. Like he knows, okay, I'm going to do, he's going to accomplish his will. Remember, this is, all of this is in fulfillment of a promise he made back to Abraham all the way back in chapter 15 of Genesis, which some of you are actually here for. <clears throat> he's made this promise. Abraham's offspring, after four generations of bondage, are going to come back into the land of Abraham, and they're going to cleanse that land of those whose time is up, who God has given 400 years to repent and turn from the evils such as uh, rampant idolatry and child sacrifice and widespread immorality and murder and, and all of just the evils of that society, that's what God is sending judgment against. But this time it's not a flood. It's going to be a flood of people. It's going to be an army. And that's his judgment. And then later when Israel does the same thing those Canaanites do, and God gives them century after century after century of warning, then he's going to send another army to flood in and wipe them out. And that will be the Babylonians. That's what the book of Habakkuk is actually all about. So Habakkuk hears that, sees it, and says, I can't even imagine this. Lord. What's going on here? Um, and God's basically saying, I'm doing to Israel 
what Israel did to the Canaanites because Israel became the Canaanites through their rejection of the Torah. But this is all before that. This is back when things are, are looking good and Israel is being ordered and they're being put into place by a God who does care about order, who doesn't want just people, you're free for freedom's sake. No, they're not free for freedom's sake. They're free to serve, not Pharaoh, but to serve Yahweh. To not be slaves of Pharaoh building his monuments, but to be Yahweh's people being his temple and, and, and encamping in such a way where they're actually the temple of God, a visual representation of that. And the heart of their camp, the, big, the biggest principle is that, again, Israel is this ring of humanity, and at the center is a tent, not a palace, not a regal structure. It's a tent, and it's fairly bare bones. Um, if you actually look at, a, uh, if you ever go and see a, a depiction of the tabernacle that people sometimes build as visuals, you look at it and they're surprisingly not overwhelming. You know, it's like, all right, it's a tent. It's a tall tent, but it's a tent and it's surrounded by curtains. It's, it's not this wow factor. Only in the inside of the tent, at the heart of the tent then, is what it all centers around, and that is God's very presence in that holy of holies, the covenant that would contain the tablets of the testimony. In other words, the, the law of Sinai, the Torah, the covenant tablets were in that ark, in that box. And then later in Numbers, you'll see the story of Aaron and his rod that buds and the others don't, and that's a symbol of the leadership of the priesthood. And those are the two things that are in it, and then some manna that they collected to put in it as a memorial supernatural provision of God for his people in the wilderness. That's it. That's all that's in there. That's all. There's no statue. There's no idol of the God like there would be in every other palace. It's it. It's empty. God dwells there above the outstretched wings of the cherubim which are on the cover of this box. And he dwells there in unapproachable glory and splendor and the cloud, the pillar of fire, all that kind of stuff. But, but <clears throat> it's one of those things that God's presence is both overwhelming and underwhelming. It's underwhelming in its visual awe. It's not this giant gold statue or anything like that. I mean, it's a very small box chest, and that's kind of it, in a dark room, in a tent, in the middle of another tent, in the middle of an empty courtyard. But it's unapproachable. It's awe-inspiring in God's heaviness, His presence, His glory. So when He comes down and fills the tabernacle with fire and smoke and all of the stuff, and the fire came out and consumed Nadab and Abihu and, and Leviticus for offering unauthorized sacrifice. For, you know, when, when God shows up, He's overwhelming. But somebody looking in from the outside not seeing that dynamic would just see, why are these guys carrying an empty tent around? And, and they, later when the temple became the temple and one of the conquering emperors came in and threw open the curtain expecting to see the God of the Israelites, he was like, where is he? Where, why, why, this is empty. What's going on? And that actually happened later in Jewish history. So it's, it's a really cool paradox that carries into the new covenant as well. God is both overwhelming and underwhelming. He doesn't, he's not a God that shows off for the sake of showing off. He's God who dwells there with his people at all times. And he dwells there in their midst, but not in a way that's easily perceptive to the outside pagan world looking in. He doesn't have an idol, a statue of him. He specifically forbid a statue of him from being made. So this is the God who's encamped in the center of Israel. 
And just the fact that he's at the center is also the, is the biggest lesson of the chapter. God is at the, he's, he's communicating in every way, shape, and form. Put me at the center. Put me in the middle of you. In your midst. Right where you are. And all of you are facing me. Everybody's looking at me and I'm right in the middle of you. And this is the relationship that we're going to have. And through that relationship, the outside world looking in is going to see that. And that is what eventually they will be drawn to as they see this relationship that you and I have. It's the plan for the Old Testament. It went off the rails around the time of Solomon. It was on track to kind of get there. And Solomon's reign looked really promising. And then immediately he just started going downhill and it all fell apart. And the next generation, civil war, deportation, destruction, all of that. And then the new covenant was, was centuries away. And they longed for that. And the new covenant would be when God would get back on track doing what he had promised to do in the Old Testament, which is drawing a people to himself who would put him at the center, who would focus on him, who would be in relationship with him, and through them being a priestly kingdom, all the nations of the earth would be blessed in fulfillment of the promise to Abraham back in Genesis. So that's what God's doing, and it's the same today. You see this churches that put God at the center do better than churches that don't. Churches that put God at the center are vibrant communities. Now, they may not be the biggest churches, but they are vibrant communities of faith where lives are being transformed where the gospel is, is doing what it was intended to do. People are coming to faith. Churches that don't put God at the center, churches that put anything else at the center, are churches where God's activity is being stifled, being hampered. Just like if Israel had put something else in the center instead of the tabernacle, or put something with the tabernacle in the center. And so it's a reminder, Numbers 2 is a reminder for Christians individually, yeah, keep Jesus at the center of your life, for sure. He's Israel's Messiah. Who do you want leading the charge? You want the Messiah of Israel leading the people of Israel, and you are the people of Israel if you have faith in the seed of Israel. Paul flat out says this in Galatians 2 and Ephesians 2. So then Jesus should be at the center of your life. Yes, you singular, but also you as a community. And that trickles into the church you go to or the ministry that you're a part of or the believers that you meet with regularly, which you should be doing in some way, shape, or form. All of that, Jesus should be the center. The Messiah of Israel should be on the throne of Israel among his people who are Israel. And you see that in churches. You can watch churches just decline, fall, and lose relevance, and lose impact, and lose effectiveness over the centuries. and become just hollow husks of just like the Rotary Club or, or some other organization that does good for the sake of doing good. But, but that's not what the church is called to be. There's, 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 a, there's a focus that the church should have. And you can see this in churches where the focus is on God, His presence, His spiritual presence amongst His people, and His Word and the teaching of His Word, which is what the ark and the priesthood would have, that's, that was their job. So churches that remove that, and there are whole denominations that have done that, you see the effects. The churches that are faithful to it, the communities of faith that are faithful to the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and the people of God, and their focus is on the Messiah of Israel. Those are the churches that you can see God moving amongst their midst in a way that's both overwhelming and underwhelming. In a way that's, that's 
readily identifiable, but not easily perceivable visually. Big churches, small churches, house churches, underground churches, extravagant churches, all of them, doesn't matter. Where's the focus? Who's at the center of the camp? And so that's the message that Numbers chapter 2 leaves us with. Now, next week, we'll look at Numbers chapter 3 because it's going to tell us about the Levites. And a lot of people, this is, this is helpful to know when you get later in the New Testament, the Levites and the priests aren't the same thing. The priests are a subgroup within the Levites. And within the Levites, there are priests, and then there are three other groups. And those three other groups are responsible for three other things. And they will be camped around. They'll be like the inner ring of the donut, so to speak. They're the ones camped right up against the tabernacle, protecting the people from the holiness of God and protecting the tabernacle from the defiling of the people. So the priests' role, even though they're not numbered for active duty, as, as the other tribes were, their duty, they are said to be on guard duty. The language used of them is military. They're arranged into elephs as well. But they are responsible for guarding the tabernacle, not against the pagan nations, but the people of God and vice versa. So it's a really interesting calling that the priests and the Levites have um, and, and what that means for us as New Covenant believers today. But we are out of time. So have a great week. Get some uh, birthday pie, fruit dessert here if you want some, seconds if you want it. We'll see you next week.